typical Mother's Day message. And you know, it's every once in a while we'll target that specifically. Sometimes it could be an opportunity for outreach and everything, but also sometimes holidays could interfere with the messages that the Lord's already put on your heart. So didn't want that to happen. So we're going to continue on through the Gospel of John on where we're talking about. We didn't get finished last week, so this will be part two on the introduction on who the Apostle John is. And then next week we'll be actually getting into the writings of John. But just before we got into the writing of John, the Gospel of John, we wanted to learn a little bit about the character of John. And some of this will have a little bit of review in it from last week. Um, but we'll be really going into uh, more detail. And so one of the things with the Apostle John was he had a lot of ambition early on. But he also had, he had a lot of pride with that ambition. But we do see he ends up learning um, some things. And he learned to balance that ambition with humility. In his youth, John had some plans for himself. He knew what he wanted to do. Um, but again, it just kind of let him new pride. And um, for to have a proper balance... Ambition needs to have humility with it. Otherwise, what could be a virtue more turns into a vice. Instead of turning into something that more turns people um, off. Um, It's not inherently wrong to have influence or to desire success. I don't know anybody that just desires to fail with their life. Um, Now, there's a lot of people that walk that path that there is no success, but usually no one's ever going to verbalize and go, I just want to really be a loser in life. I don't think anybody usually has that, that attitude. They usually have some aspirations. And you know, it's a wonderful thing to desire to have a positive influence on people and to have success. But it becomes wrong when there are selfish motives behind it. You know what the Bible says? He that desire of the office of a bishop, desire of what? A good work. Bible says it's a wonderful thing. What a wonderful thing for someone to aspire to um, follow God's leading in pastoring in a church. Yet at the same time, we see there was a pastor by the name Diotrephes. And why was he pastoring? Simply for the preeminence. He wanted to have the preeminence among the people, and he often would exclude people. He would kick people out of church. And it wasn't through any proper biblical order of a church discipline. It was rather he didn't need to have the church discipline. But um, he was very proud in his ambition. And that's where we see the balance with Scripture again. The Bible says, be not many masters. Don't don't be many that that have an influence on others in the sense of being a leader, being a teacher, because we shall receive the greater condemnation. That, That a leader, there's nothing wrong with being a leader. It's a good thing to aspire to be a leader but we will give an account 
Because now we're not just making an impact on our lives, but we're influencing lives of others. In Mark chapter 10, um, in verse 32, go, go ahead and um, turn there. Hold on, let me see. Yeah, Mark 10, chapter 32. It says, and they were in the way um, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them, and they were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve, and he, uh, and he began to tell them um, what things should happen unto them. And, and, and it goes to go 35, and it says, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldst do for us whatsoever we shall desire. He now just before this, in, back in verse 33, he says, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. And then go a little bit further up to verse 31. Jesus was teaching them in a parable. He says, but many that are first shall be last, and the last first. And then let's see what's on James and John's mind. Because it looks like they were not listening to the message one bit at all. He says, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldst do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Jesus just had been teaching them that the first shall be last. You know, those that put themselves first in society, they're going to be really last in the eyes of God. But those that are servants, those that put themselves last and put others first, they're going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And then right after Jesus tells them, the Son of Man, He's going to be mocked. He's going to be put to death. What are James and John talking about? We want you to give us whatever we desire. And Jesus said, what would ye that I would do for you? They said unto him, grant unto us that we may sit, one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto him, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with, how shall ye be baptized? But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared." And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. And then Jesus goes on to talk about how, in verse 43, But so shall it not be among you, but whosoever shall be great among you shall be your minister. So you know, they didn't get the message that Jesus was trying to teach the first time. And they were so consumed with themselves that they're like, well, after he dies, and okay, if he's going to rise again, give us the right to be on your left hand of your throne 
and one on the right hand of your throne. They were ambitious. They wanted dominance. They wanted to be preeminent um, above everybody else with Jesus Christ. And Jesus asked them, are you going to be able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And he wasn't talking about the water baptism. He was talking about a baptism of suffering. Are you going to be able to suffer? And their response was, yeah, we can. And he goes, you will. You are going to learn to suffer. But right now, we're not talking about, you know what, it'll be prepared for whom is prepared, who will sit on the left and the right. And so it's just ironic that Jesus had just reiterated the importance of humility before this happened. And many that are first shall be last, and the last first. And so it becomes wrong to be ambitious when we are not humble with it. Their heir was desiring to obtain the position more than they desire to be worthy of the position. You know, you see that often in the employment force. You know, a lot of times people, they want the position. They want to be the manager. They want to be the boss. But they don't really want to show themselves worthy of it now. You know, as I've heard one radio talk show used to say that, you know, people that think they need a raise... They say, you know what? Work as if you were making more than you're making now. Don't be whining and complaining about the race. You go and you show the work that they don't want to lose you and they give you a race. Show yourself worthy of the position. But we see with John, who ends up being used later to write the Gospel of John early on, struggled with humility. They didn't have it. We see Jesus again reinforce the virtue of humility after. We see Christ himself was the perfection of true humility. That his kingdom is advanced by humble service, not by politics, not by status, power, or dominion. You know, we see Peter, you know what? Want to be protective. Ends up, I'm trying to go for the soldier's head. And he misses and cuts his ear off. Um, to protect Jesus. And at first that appears noble. But then Jesus heals the man's heir and says, you know what, this isn't how my kingdom's going to fight. That it is a spiritual kingdom. You know, we see later on that, that Jesus made a point when he set a child in the midst of the disciples and talked to them about the childlikeness faith of a true believer. That unless one have the faith as a child, he shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And you know, like children have a simple faith. You know, my kids, when they were very little, most of them, I think, maybe the exception of one of them, but they had no problem jumping off something high for me to catch them. They had that faith. We had one that they'd be afraid of, like, even the playground, there'd be cracks along the boards, and he'd be, like, crawling on that. But, you know, Jesus talks about the childlikeness of a faith. That, you know, it must have a faith as a child to enter the kingdom of God. We see in, um, in Luke um, 14, verse 8, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. 
And he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room. And when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalt of himself shall be abased, and he that humble of himself shall be exalted. And you know, you enter them, you don't give yourself that prominence. And I remember as a teenager, being kind of comical that, you know what, like what the teens would say, like call shotgun and get in the front of the row. And then the driver would go, nope, you get in the back. Someone else is coming in the front. You know, they put themselves in the front, but then with shame they're told to go in the back. And then someone else is called to come forward. And, uh, and so Jesus said, He that exalts himself shall be abased, but the humble shall be exalted. And we see that John did eventually learn the balance between ambition and humility. In fact, humility is one of the greatest virtues that comes through his writings. That you read John and you see his humility throughout it. For instance, he never mentions his own name in the book of John. He simply writes... Um, that he is, uh, he writes of John the Baptist, but not of himself, and he refers to him as the one whom Jesus loved. Never referred to himself by name, but he would re- write to himself in a third person, and that disciple whom Jesus loved. That he realized that any value of his is because of the love of Jesus Christ. That he marveled that Jesus would show such great love to him. And there seems to be a unique way in which John gripped this reality, and he was humble by the love of Christ. And um, we see that he gives glory to him. We see John himself end up becoming mellowed. You know, through time, through experience, through age. And yet, we see in his life, he still remained courageous. You read John, read 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, read the book of Revelation, and you see he was courageous. We see that he was confident. We see that he was bold in his stand for the truth. That he did not step back, he did not become a pacifist and say, you know, it doesn't matter what we believe, let's just all yoke up and have a sweet unity. No, he stood for truth, he exposed error, but now he did it. Even though he was bold, his attitude, his mentality was that of humility. He remained passionate, he remained a fierce defender of doctrine. But he wrote over and over about the need for humility. We see that John had to learn the balance of suffering and glory. Again, they wanted to be next to him on the throne. But where were they when Jesus was arrested? They fled. They just told him, oh yeah, we'll get baptized with the same baptism. We're willing to suffer with you. But what happened? They fled. They weren't willing to suffer yet. Well, you know, on that night of arrest, we do see later that John was there when he was being crucified. 
And he probably began to understand the bitterness of the cup which he would drink. That he said he'd be willing to drink. As far as we know, he is the only apostle who was an actual eyewitness to Jesus' crucifixion. At least being right there. Peter, maybe he was looking from afar off. But we see John does end up coming there close by. As the Bible says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. Three Marys right there. So Mary was a pretty common name. <clears throat> when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, here we see John again. He doesn't say, oh, John the Apostle. No, he says the, apostle, the, the disciple standing by whom he loved. He saith unto his mother, woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. When John's brother James became the church's first martyr, John bore the loss in a more personal way than the other apostles. That was his own brother that went through that suffering to be that first martyr. And remember, Jesus said, you will drink of this cup. You will receive this baptism. That there would be suffering. Virtually all reliable sources in church history attest to the fact John became the pastor of the church the Apostle John had founded at Ephesus. From there, during a great persecution of the church under Roman Emperor Domitian, the brother and successor of Titus, who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, John ends up being banished to a prison community on Patmos. And now John, it is said also that he took care of Jesus' mother till she passed away. But then later on, we see he gets banished to um, a cave, um, to a prison community on Patmos. And this could be very likely be the very prison that he lived in um, there. And it was well there that he received the revelations that we see in the book of Revelation. It was a harsh environment for an aged man to live in. He was cut off from all those whom he loved. He was treated with cruelty and reproach and made asleep on a stone slab with a rock for a pillow as his years would pass away slowly. John learned to bear suffering willingly. There is no complaint about his sufferings anywhere in the epistles or the book of Revelation. And notice that in the same breath he mentioned tribulation, he speaks of the patience that enabled him to bear his sufferings willingly. That he wrote Revelation under extreme kind of hardship. But he very rarely makes mention of any difficulties. He refers to himself simply as am your brother, a companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. He was looking forward to the day when he would partake in the promised glory of the kingdom. But no longer was it with the ambition. Let me be first. 
Let me and my brother be first. No. He was willing now to suffer. He was still looking forward to the kingdom. And that's where we all are to look forward to that day when Jesus comes back. Um, when we're, or when we die. And to die is to be present with the Lord. Wonderful thing to look forward to. But that's where it's the right balance um, that's a healthy perspective. That he looked to learn behind, beyond his earthly sufferings. In anticipation of the glory that would come. But if we desire to participate in the heavenly glory, we must also be willing to partake in earthly sufferings today. You know, this was the Apostle Paul's desire. He wrote that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Paul wasn't saying that he had a lust for pain. He wasn't saying, I covet to suffer. That's not what Paul was suffering. But that he recognized that glory and suffering were inseparable. Those who desire the reward of glory will and must be willing to face the suffering on this earth. Suffering is the price of glory. In Romans it says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ... If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. There's sufferings we go through in life. Don't get so consumed by that suffering. Don't get to a point in your life where you're like thinking, I have it so bad. I have it worse than everyone else. No, just understand that, you know what? The suffering you have, the glory that will come hereafter if you're found in Christ, is not even comparable. The glory will be wonderful. See, that Jesus taught this principle over and over. He said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The cross was a place of execution. It was not a place of glory. No one goes to the electrical chair and says, oh, I'm doing this to be glorified. But that's basically what Jesus is saying to do. Take up your cross and follow me. To die to self. To put Christ first above all things that He would be preeminent. Suffering is to preclude to glory. Our suffering as believers is the assurance of the glory that is yet to come. You can read more about that in 1 Peter 1, verse 6 to 7. But all the disciples needed to learn this. Is it wasn't just James and John that had disputes early on on one to be the greatest. Later on, the other disciples were asking, yeah, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? They were proud, they were ambitious, but they lacked humility at the time. They all wanted chief seats in glory. But Jesus said there would be a price for those seats. And you think about the different biographies that maybe you've read, 
and those, whether they were heroes of the faith, you know, people that you've seen, as mis- read about as missionaries, or whether they were war heroes or um, civil rights heroes, whatever it was, we honor them today because they suffered. We see that they were willing to suffer for their cause. One glimpse of Jesus, think about this, in the fullness of His glory, will be worth all the pain, all the sorrow, all the suffering that you've had to endure on earth. All the suffering that you're going to endure in the future. When you just get that glimpse of the face of Jesus, you'll be like, it was worth it all. And try and live with that perspective today. Thinking that, yes, you know what, things will get better. But if you're called to suffer for Jesus' sake today, embrace it. You know, the psalmist says this, For me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Participation in Christ's glory is therefore a fitting desire for every child of God. It wasn't wrong that John and James wanted to be with Jesus. But it was the motive of pride. That they wanted to be preeminent. They wanted to be first. It wasn't wrong for them to want to be with Jesus. To want to be in His likeness. It's those who thirst for glory must be willing to balance that with whatever suffering God enables or allows us to go through. It doesn't mean we chase after suffering, okay? We don't just go cut our arm off and go, oh, I'm suffering for Jesus. It's not what we're doing. We're not seeing suicide here, but rather a dying to selfish desires for the cause of Christ. 1 John 3, written by the Apostle John. Now he writes, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And every man have this hope in Him, purify of Himself, even as He is pure. So it wasn't a bad desire to have. He just had to learn to have that desire to be tempered, to be willing that, you know what, that's God's place to give. It's His place, His timing to give it as he sees fit, not for us to self-exalt ourselves. And John aged well under the control of the Holy Spirit. All his liabilities that he had were exchanged for assets. They end up becoming his weaknesses, end up becoming strong through Jesus Christ. You Again, you look at the young disciple with him later on. And you see that he matured, that the greatest areas of his weaknesses develop into his greatest strengths. Amen. He had that ambition. He had that desire for prominence. He didn't want to suffer, though. He ran away from suffering whenever it would come. But then later, we see him willing to suffer. And we see him writing the book of Revelation while he's suffering in great difficulties. 
We see him writing of humility, of the need to be humble. Now, he is an amazing example of what should happen to us as we grow in Christ, that we allow the Lord's strength in our lives to be made perfect from our weaknesses. And you know the scripture that talks about that, that through our weaknesses, we're able to see the strength of Christ in our life. John died by most accounts around 98 AD during the reign of Emperor Trajan. Jerome says in his commentary on Galatians that the aged apostle John was so frail in his final days at Ephesus that he had to be carried into church. He had to be carried to church. He had to be brought into church. You know what? Today we have, you know what? Daniel goes and picks up his dad for church. I mean, you know what? Brooke, bringing James here for church. And so, and so like, you know what? They have such a desire to be in the house of God that even while they are suffering, they are here. It's like the Apostle John was. Today, church is more, if it's convenient, I'll make it. God's important to me, but I have all these other things. I got my sports, I got my activities, I got my clubs. You know what, I want to give all my kids these. And then they wonder, why do my children walk away from the faith when they become adults? Then you show them the right priorities. And you know what, the Lord comes preeminent. All the activities, the sports, they're wonderful. We have our children involved in sports. This spring, we chose not to. This spring, you know, after we had a busy season remodel and want to spend a little bit more time actually with them and not just doing activities. Okay, because there's, there's a difference. Yes, there's activities we could do together, but there's times where it's just you watch them do an activity, and yes, it's important to try to be there for them. But make sure there's a relationship building, spending time with one another. This is also said of the Apostle John. Again, remember his attitude was before? Lord, give us the power of Elijah. Let us call down fire from heaven and destroy these Samaritans. These are the enemies of God. Let's see them destroy. Give us this power. The end of his life, a phrase that it said historically, that was constantly on his lips. My children love one another. Remember before Jesus spoke about, or John and James, they were upset. There's other people. They're casting out devils in your name, but they're not following us. Jesus taught them, forbid them not. Yeah, they may not be following us exactly, but you know what? They're not against us. Therefore, the Lord. This doesn't mean you're always going to go up, yoke up, walk with them. But forbid them not. For John, they wanted the preeminence. Now, John, he's telling, he says, my, my little children love one another. And you read 1 John over and over. It talks about loving one another. Loving God. 
And that if a man says he loves God and loves not his brother, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. Oh, John changed because of what Jesus transformed in his life. Someone asked him this. Why he always said that? Why do you always say, my little children love one another? And he replied, it is the Lord's command, and if this alone be done, it is enough. That's all we're to do, you know, to just continue to love one another. You know, it's a great thing to have a high regard for truth. But zeal for the truth must be balanced by a love for the people. That's why you can take two different churches that are both biblically sound in doctrine. And one of them seems to have the Spirit of Christ, they flourish, no matter what size they are, whether they're small or big. And in another church, you come in and it just, all you feel is just the rules, you just feel the strictness, and there's nothing wrong with rules. You know what, there's guidelines for leadership. You know what, that's normal. But oftentimes people, churches can have all these guidelines, all these rules. Everybody's looking exactly the same. And yet their heart is far from the Lord. They're proud of their doctrine. Instead of standing for doctrine because you know what? They love God. And there is a difference. A church that they stand for doctrine out of love for Jesus Christ than someone that stands for doctrine because they're prideful and they believe we're right and everyone else is wrong. There's a difference. And we see John understood that. He had a zeal for truth. And he was not afraid to expose false teachers. And he told those old ladies that were helping these other missionaries that would come and need a place to stay. He commended her for that and said, that's wonderful that you're helping these strangers as they're going about giving the gospel out. But then he cautions her. These ones that are false prophets, false teachers, receive them not into your house. Neither give them God's speed. Don't enable them. Don't help those that are given a false gospel. So truth was still important, but it was balanced for a love for people. Without love, it could give way to judgmentalism, harshness, and a lack of compassion. It's fine to be hardworking and ambitious. We should be. But if ambition is not balanced with humility, it becomes sinful pride. Self-promotion at the expense of others. It is wonderful to want to be with Jesus in glory. But without the balance of being willing to suffer for His namesake, it is nothing but wanting prideful prominence. In the life of the younger disciple John, he behaved like an extremist, a bigot, harsh, reckless, who was selfishly committed to himself being right, rather than what may truly be truth. In his early years, he was most un, probably a most unlikely candidate to be remembered as the apostle of love. 
But three years of being with Jesus, Jesus began to transform a self-centered fanatic into a mature man of balance. Three years with Jesus moved the Son of Thunder toward becoming an apostle of love. And so you know what? One thing you notice, we have people come, you know what? Sometimes we can be like, oh man, you know, I just can't stand them. You know what? Jesus could transform them too. And we need to yield ourselves to allowing Jesus to transform us. Willingly. You know, he is the, he, he is the potter. You know what? He can mold us any way as he seems fit. And you know what the Bible talks about in Jeremiah 18? Those that became stiff-necked, those that became as hardened clay, well, yeah, they're not moldable anymore, so they just get broken. Now, be willing to be broken in the hand of God, but avoid being broken because of the judgment of God. And learn to balance. Balance ambition with humility. Balance, you know, looking forward to glory with being willing. Lord, here am I. If you want me to suffer for your namesake, so be it. If you want my children to go to another country where I'm hardly going to see them, be willing to let them go. That's God's calling on their life. And often now, you got technology that missionaries didn't have in the past. Many places around the world, even third world country, there's some places where you could probably still FaceTime the tablet, still see one another. Man, back then, man, they, they had no way of contact. It was really like letting them go, not knowing if you were ever going to see them again. But allow yourselves to be balanced, to be a balanced Christian. Pray for me that I'll be a balanced preacher. You know that there will be times where you know what someone say this visiting, they'll hear a message, and they might be, "Wow, that pastor, he is firm, man. He is preaching straight. It's black and white." But let them also walk out thinking, "But well, he was strong in that, man. You know what? He loved people. You know what? He came. He was genuinely concerned about our welfare. That he wanted to make sure things." We're all right with us. We know we were going through a heartache. And that preacher was there for us. Pray for me to have that balance. See, I know it's easy to get off balance. It's easy, man, you know, it's just, man, preach those fire and brimstone messages. And those, they're still going to be preached. But let it still be tempered with an attitude of love. Pray that I don't get unbalanced in the other way. Where it's like, hey, let's just do everything we could to grow our church Let's just be all lovey-dovey. Let's never deal with sin. Let's never um, preach on hard things. Just so we're likable. Pray I don't fall in that trap. Pray we allow, that, that I allow, to have Jesus in my life to be a balanced preacher. That we, as a church, would be a balanced Christian. That we would see people that we would see one another. They have a heart for God. They have a walk for Christ. And say you have high convictions in things. When people see you, don't let it be their, your convictions that they're seeing first. Let it be the love of Christ.
did they see? Sure, let them see. That, well, you know what? They have good standards. You know what? They have standards of modesty. You know, when they go to the beach, they're not dressing half naked. Okay? They actually have convictions about modesty. Sure, you know what? Be an example in that. You know what? The Bible talks about the aged woman being an example to the younger woman in that. But why are we doing it? Is it to have these great rules that we follow? No. It's to show our love for Christ. And that when we love Christ, His commands, you know, they're not grievous. They're not overbearing. We do it because we love Christ. We love Him because He first loved us. You know, let's just go ahead and have time of prayer. You know, let's go have time of prayer. You know, let our piano players step out. Just time of prayer. Just asking Jesus, help you to be a balanced Christian. Help us to be a balanced church. Be transformed. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to manifest balance. Love for truth, but also a love for loving people, of loving you. Help it to be that when people visit our church, that they see a balance. We may have people visit that they have the mentality that what you say in your word doesn't really matter as long as we love each other. Let them learn that, no, you know what, truth does matter. And let those also that maybe visit our church, that they have all these man-made rules that make themselves feel godly, that when they come in here, that they don't see just another place that just has all these rules, but they see a place that though they may have strong convictions, and have high standards that they see that it's not about showing themselves to be better than someone else. It's not a who has the most standards contest. But that there's a love, there's a peace, that there's a joy in our midst. Help us to have that joy. Help us to have balance from the pulpit. Help us to have balance in the congregation. Help us to be a balanced follower of You, Lord. We thank You, Lord, for all things. In Jesus' name, Amen. Next week, we have our shared meal. Uh, Mexican-style shared meal. So you know what? Bring out the best Mexican you can make. If you don't know how to make Mexican, maybe get some tips from Sarah. Um, she knows how to make some excellent Mexican food, and she's kind of heading up the shared meal. And um, she can maybe even give you some different recipes. And also next week, you know, I, I did a terrible job planning, preparing for it. But we have it. It's um, our open house Sunday. And you were right there, right there the whole time, huh? Were you? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um,